Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello, everyone, and welcome to you all. Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. Hope you are all having a wonderful day. It is hump day. If you are a Monday to Friday worker, you are uh, past the midway point of your week. If you are like anyone else that is having to embrace the gig economy because it's the only way to keep up, then uh, it's not hump day for you. But I hope we can give you a, a little bit of insight and perhaps even entertainment on this program today. I attempted, I will say, I don't get out of the house much, so I sometimes forget what life is like outside the house, but I was attempting to be entertained yesterday. I went to a concert with my lovely wife. Uh, there was a, a singer, well, is a singer, who's a, a friend of ours, and he was performing, and uh, he sent us an invite and uh, said, yeah, I'll give you guys some tickets, give you some backstage passes. You can come by after the show. It'll be great. So we went there, and it was out of town, so a little bit of a road trip, and I'm getting ready to sit down at a rock concert. Now, I am ready to rock out. I'm like, I'm, this is as rocky as I get. I was wearing a collared dress shirt, so don't think I was like wearing my Guns N' Roses cut off tee and had the hair long. No, no, no. This is, this is as rocky as I get, but I was ready to rock out. I was at a rock concert, and I'm sitting down. I'm in the venue. The lights go off. We're about to get started. And on comes the guy who works for the venue to do the land acknowledgement, which, again, I don't get out much, so I don't know if this is a thing at, like, every live event you go to now. There was, there was a little poster in the hallway that I thought sufficed for the land acknowledgement by saying we were in Oakville, so it's like we were on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation and all that. And, and again, but it's not... Here's the thing that got me, is that I'm used to the regular land acknowledgement. I'm used to the, uh, we are on the traditional territory, and then, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the concession stand is open outside. Uh, enjoy the show. This was a weird one because the guy said where we were and then he started talking about truth and reconciliation. And then he said we were all lied to if we grew up in the 1960s and 70s and our government tried to destroy their culture and we need to tell our elected officials to stop breaking treaties. And then he started talking about drinking water. He started talking about boil water advisories. And again, you look, there's a time and a place for uh, political stuff. This was neither of those things, I would say. And then, you know, he's just depressed everyone or in some cases fired them up to, you know, give truth to power about Indigenous politics. And then at the end of it, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, here is the, I don't know, I'm not going to name the performer because they, they had nothing to do with it. And I, I actually asked one of the singer, one of the, the guys backstage after the singer that I know, I said, I said, what did you think of the, uh, the land acknowledgement? And he's like, the what? I was, I was like, didn't you hear? He's like, oh no, I was, uh, I was downstairs getting ready for the show. So, uh, if this is a thing at all concerts, please let me know because it, it got to it, the sense that I got was that the venue guy like actually wanted the applause himself. Like he just wanted to get the crowd all fired up instead of just doing the obligatory. Like he believed it at least. So 
uh, maybe it's a step in the right direction. I was at an event once where someone did a land acknowledgement and then someone else did an acknowledgement of their acknowledgement because they wanted to do the land acknowledgement. So I'm not entirely sure if we're just letting the politics of this get away, but uh, plenty of time to talk about this because apparently they're happening at every event you go to now. Let's talk about uh, the real story of the week here, which is the federal budget. And in this particular case, the federal government is on track to run up a deficit of $40.1 billion. That is a billion with a B, if you were keeping score at home. Now, these numbers at a certain point are abstract and meaningless to people because if you are $200 away, as many families are in this country, from having to put everyday expenses on your credit card, $40 billion is a number that is such an abstraction, it is meaningless in your life. And I, again, I can tell you that when government is spending outside its means, it does negatively affect every other Canadian. And I think governments around the world have had a bit of cover because COVID required spending. But they've used that to justify spending far beyond what COVID necessitated and also as a bit of a shield for the fact that in this particular case, we had a government that was running up billions in deficits even before the pandemic came along when the economy was doing quite well. And their rationale was, well, we're doing okay as a country so we can afford it. And then the rationale became, well, things are terrible, so we need to do it. And as I've often remarked, you kind of look and say, well, hang on, if good times and bad times warrant deficit spending, when is the time that we don't run deficits? And there doesn't appear to be to this government one of those things. So let's talk about one specific aspect of this. The federal government promised there would be some relief for families. If you have been to a grocery store in the last year, you know full well what the problem is. You don't need politicians to tell you. Their solution for this is to give every family in Canada a one-time grocery rebate. Oh, wait. It's actually not every family in Canada. They're going to give some families in Canada a grocery rebate of sorts, and they're going to run this through the existing GST rebate program. Uh, the average family could make about $467. I shouldn't say make, could receive $467 from this, but uh, many people will get less than that. And if you are buying groceries, you'll know that for a family, $467 might well be one or maybe, if you're really lucky, two grocery bills, and then you're back to groceries that you cannot afford. So is there a solution the government could have put forward here? And is this something that is at all even resembling a solution? I want to talk about just this aspect of the budget alone for a little while with Professor Sylvain Charlebois, one of the brightest minds in food policy in this country from Dalhousie University. Professor, good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Nice talking to you as well, Andrew. So let's start start off with talking about this rebate here. I mean, obviously, it is a Band-Aid, and I don't think it's pretending to be anything more than a Band-Aid. But uh, like, if you look at grocery bills, it's almost laughable to think of just how little that two or $300 a family might get will go on this issue. Pretty much. Uh, I mean, when you look at uh, what's going on with food inflation, uh, the average family of four will likely pay about $1,100 more for their food this year. So that family would probably receive uh, an extra $467 if they qualify, if they qualify. And that's a one-time payment. And so... And just to contextualize that, Professor, that's half of the increase. So, yeah, so they're still less, out $500 a year more. 
Yeah, it's actually less than half of the yeah. increase over one year. But Andrew, I mean, food inflation is a lingering challenge for everyone. Uh, it's not just over the next six months. Uh, we are we are looking at some nasty numbers for 2023, 2024 as well. So there's no long-term plan here. This is really about politicizing food inflation, really. I mean, uh, we've seen it in many provinces, and, and Ottawa basically decided to do the same by sending out checks. It's the easiest thing to do by just changing the name of a program, GST rebate, and and make it a little bit more sexy, if you will, and, uh, and call it a grocery rebate. But it doesn't mean that people will actually use that money to spend on groceries, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and of course, the, the blatantly obvious issue with this is that it's not dealing with the underlying causes. So it's not a, a sustain. I mean, if you can even call it a solution, it's certainly not a sustainable solution. So let's talk about what some of those could be, because I, I don't like oversimplifying issues here. If we're looking at the, the food costs and the increase that you just mentioned, can we trace this back to one or two concepts? Or are we talking about many, many inputs that are contributing this to this? Ooh, <laughs> that's a tough one because you have, you know, eighteen to twenty thousand SKUs in a grocery store, and they all have a story. Uh, of course, uh, or there are we we can actually identify overarching factors like uh, supply chain uh, uh, weaknesses uh, due to COVID and uh, and the aftermath. Uh, there's Ukraine, of course. Ukraine made everything more expensive almost overnight. And, and, there's, and there's climate change. I mean, right now, I can tell you in six months from now, beef will be more expensive because there are many parts of the U.S. where there are droughts and cattle ranchers are just getting rid of their inventory. So my guess in six months from now, your beef at the grocery store will be more expensive, and that's due to a drought. California is North America's garden. Uh, it ran out of water for a while. Now it has too much water. And so they don't know exactly what's going to happen there. There's been some crops ruined, over $300 million worth of crops. A lot of that product was supposed to go to Canada. It won't. So chances are vegetables will be more expensive in a few weeks from now. So there's there's lots going on at once. But I would say that those are the top three factors impacting most of the grocery store. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Yeah, and, and then you can look beyond that. And, and if we are sort of analyzing this through the perspective of multiple inputs, you know, 5% from one thing, 2% from another thing, it, it all does add up. I, I mean, you, I, I know I've spoken elsewhere. It's the, the sacred cow, pardon the pun in Canada, but supply management is driving up uh, dairy costs and, and poultry. You have uh, carbon taxes, which I, I think are also contributing because it, it adds to shipping. So uh, it becomes very difficult when you start layering all of these things to find one ready-made solution does it not no absolutely so it's it's hard to uh to look at uh all of the factors and as as a government how do you tackle all these factors so i i've always advocated for measures that would be meaningful and that would change the cost structure of the entire industry right now 
what you're looking at, uh, Andrew, uh, is is a new baseline. 2022 was an historical year when it comes to uh, management in the food sector. Uh, there is a new baseline. Wages are way up. Packaging costs. Everything is costing more. So when people are asking me if food prices are going to drop anytime soon, I I, I kind of laugh because I, I don't. We don't see it. We don't see how food prices will drop. So we are hoping for a lower food inflation rate. And that's probably going to happen during the second half of 2023. You know, I, I imagine just from what you're describing about Ukraine and weather conditions and all of that, that food prices can be a bit of a lagging indicator. So even if some changes were put into effect now, how long does it actually take to start seeing the effects of these things? Or, or does it, to go back to your comment about the number <laughs> of SKUs, depend on the product? Yeah, it, it absolutely depends. Now, when you look at uh, central banks and and they're all trying to actually bring down uh, the inflation rate, even though Canada actually has one of the lowest inflation rates in the world, by the way, Andrew. I don't know if you knew this, but if you look at the G7, uh, Canada is number three after the U.S. and Japan. Japan is at 7.5. The U.S. is at 9.4. We're at 9.7. Uh, but people in Canada uh, won't care. They won't care what's going on in Germany or France or the U.K. They care about what's going on uh, in their own grocery mm -hmm. stores. Uh, and so you have to kind of wonder why are prices still too high, given the fact that we do grow a lot of food here in Canada. And that's really the one thing that's bothering a lot of people. And the answer to that question is pretty simple. I don't think there's been any greedflation going on. Uh, we actually did look at financial statements of grocers. There's no evidence. Margins have been pretty stable. However, margins are double of what they are in the U.S. If you look at operational margins, if you look at Metro, Loblaws, and Sobeys, for example, Empire, and you look at, uh, say, Kroger's and Albertson, they're, they're double. So it's been cozy for them in Canada, really. We need more competition, but... Here's the thing, Andrew, and this is what I was expecting in the budget yesterday. Canada's not all that interesting to invest in. Canada doesn't attract investors. Aldi and Little, for 20 years, they've been in the U.S. Well, Aldi actually entered in 2017, but Aldi, uh, uh, Aldi has been around for a long time. They've looked at Canada. They've never invested because they saw companies like Target leave in a nanosecond. They saw Sears leave. Lowe's leave, Nordstrom is leaving in a couple of months. It's a hard market to service because of interprovincial barriers. Our fiscal regime is, is incredibly cumbersome. And I was expecting yesterday in the budget to see some really meaningful measures to make our market more competitive, but I, I didn't see anything, unfortunately. Yeah. And I mean, one example that I recall coming up, and I, I don't know if it was overstated uh, as to how influential it was, but when Target came to Canada, however many years ago, uh, bilingualism on packaging. So it, it's, yep. they had to, in, in many ways, recreate their supply chain. They couldn't just take the products that were on the shelf in the United States and plop them on the shelf in, in Canada. So it, it, it does, I think, for a lot of companies bring up this question of, is it worth the hassle to do all this extra work exactly. for a country a tenth the size? And, and a lot of people, a lot of companies that do look at the, uh, the, the supply chain economics of Canada, and uh, it's, it's hard. It's really, really hard. In, in the U.S., de facto, the number one grocer is Walmart, 
Okay. Uh, Walmart's market share in the U.S. is about 20%, which is not a whole lot, but it's 20%. In Canada, the number one grocer is Loblaw. They own 32% of the market. Hmm. So that's market dominance along with uh, Sobeys and Metro. So there, there, is, there is some coziness uh, that needs to be broken up. And so that's why I've been advocating for a code of conduct, for example, to protect independent grocers because independent grocers are disappearing. I mean, they're just gone. They're disappearing everywhere in the country and we need to protect them a little bit. They have no chance against Walmart and Loblaw negotiating with processors and they are fewer than in the United States. So it's hard to get a good price. Uh, the stop sell uh, last year, I don't know if you remember with Frito-Lay and Loblaw. Do you remember... When Frito-Lay, Pepsi actually just left the table and decided not mm -hmm. to sell to Loblaw. That's what I'm talking about. The code of conduct. Pepsi was big enough to basically just walk away for a month. Many SME companies, like ma many small companies, family-sized companies out there can't afford to do that. And that's due to the fact that Loblaw and Walmart have too much power. So we're agreed, Professor, that the one-time grocery rebate is essentially meaningless for, for a lot of people, at least in the long term, past the, the first couple of months of, of receiving the check. If there were one well, Actually, I, I, I would say one thing. I think it yeah. actually can be a problem. Hmm. When, you see, when you see a government invest in the economy, it's only $2.5 but still, you do not want to see a state, a government, uh, pour more money, uh, more fuel onto the inflation fire because you may end up raising prices for everyone. Mm. So they're trying to help 11 million people, but at this time they could actually hurt potentially, well, 39 million people. No, that, that's a very, a very fair point. I'm, I'm glad you raised that. I, I guess just in closing, I'd say, you know, if there were one singular policy that would make, in your view, a difference, if such a thing exists in the budget, what would that be? Like right away? Yeah. If you were, and, uh, if, and, if you had the misfortune of being Canada's finance minister and, and you, know, <laughs> you, you, had, you had one policy you could put forward that would make a, a tangible difference, what would it be? I would elim eliminate all sales tax on food immediately retail right now because of shrinkflation a lot of packages were groceries are now snacks and if you're a snack like for example granola bars if you bought a box of five bars of granola bars instead of six that's a snack you pay tax on that okay if you're buying a container of ice cream like ben and jerry's and agendas if it's below 500 mil you're paying tax on that it's five to 15 percent depending on where you live in this country that's more money. That's a lot of money. And, uh, and families would appreciate a discount there. The same products in different sizes. Uh, gotta love uh, science and evidence and policy making. <laughs> uh, Professor Sylvain Charlebois, your insights as always appreciated. Thank you very much, sir. Take care. Thank you. Yeah, it's so absurd. And I had actually forgotten about the the snack, uh, the snack meal divide or the snack food divide. So when you're going, it's like trying to understand, well, why is this thing taxed and why is that not thing taxed? And I mean, for a guy who looks like me, it's dangerous because it means it's actually fiscally sound to buy more ice cream than to buy less ice cream, which is like hardly the message that the government should be sending with its uh, <laughs> with its uh, Canada food guide. No, 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 Andrew, if you buy one ice cream, that's just a snack. You need to buy like the whole cost sized uh, uh, crate of ice cream. In fact, I only look like this because of Justin Trudeau. Okay, may or may not be true.
In any case, uh, one thing I will say before we get on to uh, the climate war waged against, I'd say, well, pretty much everyone in this world by uh, governments and the global elites, I I just want to talk about the NDP here. And I I said last week when we were doing the show live from the Canada Strong and Free Networking Conference that you should never make the mistake of ascribing relevance to Jagmeet Singh. It's just a, a rookie error in politics. I mean, even when I was covering the election debates in 2021 and I had a question uh, that I was able to ask to Jagmeet Singh, I'm like, why do I Why do I care about it? Why am I even like, going along with this? He's like just Elizabeth May with, you know, two or three more members of parliament in his caucus. But uh, nevertheless, Jagmeet Singh is the guy who is single-handedly propping up Justin Trudeau's government right now, uh, going along with things that even the Bloc Québécois will not go along with. And uh, Jagmeet Singh, of course, has said that he is totally backing the budget. Now, here's a little clip to explain how he rationalizes supporting the Liberal budget. Uh, This is the clip where he talks about how the NDP really forced some concessions out of the Liberals. Would you figure an election if the Liberals don't meet the PharmaCare uh, plan by the end of the year? That's not a decision we're making today, but, but we want to make it very clear that uh, there are certain things that the government has to deliver by the end of this year, and the PharmaCare is one of those. We want to make sure that's absolutely delivered by the end of this year. In this budget, we have forced the government to deliver meaningful things that are going to make people's lives better, save people money, and help them with their, their health care needs, like their dental care needs. That's something that we're proud of, and we force the government to do that. There's more things that we're going to continue to force this government to do by the end of this year. It's kind of funny how the concessions he says he got out of Justin Trudeau were all things that were like literally in the liberal platform, irrespective of the NDP, that had nothing to do with the NDP. And I think I go back to Stephen Harper's line when he was on stage with uh, Preston Manning on, I guess it was a week ago today, yeah, in Ottawa. And he was saying, you know, only Jagmeet Singh could walk into a negotiating room with Justin Trudeau and come out with absolutely nothing. Like that takes a particular level of incompetence but you look at again Jagmeet Singh on Twitter throughout the year and he's saying oh the liberals have failed Canadians grocery store CEOs are getting rich and it's all happened on Justin Trudeau's watch and then budget time comes along and he's like I vote yay I vote yay I don't want to have an election I'm going to lose everything else and then I'm going to be ousted as leader so uh, here we have it continuing along and indefinitely, of course, the Conservatives voting against it and uh, the Bloc Québécois, the Green Party, again, no one really cares. But the one thing I will say, that's not true. We have like 40 minutes of show left. So uh, one of the many things I will say this show, but specifically about uh, Jagmeet Singh and his support for the Liberals is that do not believe that anything has anything to do with principles. It's absolutely not. It is purely a political calculation. It's purely brinksmanship when it suits him, saber rattling when it suits him, and blind support like a little lost puppy following around someone that looks like they might have jerky in their pocket or something. That is all that they are doing because they are trying to avoid the polls. And when they uh, have enough in their war chest that they believe they could justify going to an election or uh, when, you know, really, really they get pushed into a corner then maybe they'll pull support but it's never going to happen not over china not over ethics scandals not over inflation not even over uh, this little paltry pittance to canadians on a so-called grocery rebate uh one thing that i will now turn to which uh, we have not covered a lot and i should say canadian media has not really covered this a lot, but it's incredibly important because these sorts of reports uh, that come from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the uh, consortium of 
official alarmists around the world, uh, propped up by the United Nations. Their reports tend to be very influential when it comes to the uh, COP treaties, when it comes to, or the COP agreements, rather, when it comes to climate policy in countries like uh, Canada, which has been very deferential to the United Nations. Uh, and if you ever saw that just like weirdly preachy and terrible movie with Jonah Hill and Meryl Streep called Don't Look Up. The whole premise was that a, an asteroid is hurtling towards Earth and there are a couple of scientists that are warning people uh, to look and see it and, you know, the elites, the media, the politicians, they're not paying attention. It was like, it was the blunt force approach. No subtlety, no nuance, no symbolism. It was the uh, hit you over the head with it approach. But it's amazing how the official science-based reports from the IPCC are just as blunt and ham-fisted and, uh, I would say, fear-mongering. So the latest report, this is a, a sixth assessment, or the final part of the sixth assessment report, which came out uh, less than a couple of weeks ago. And it has been now issued as a final warning. It's now or never. We either deal with what they want us to deal with now, or it'll be too late and the world will go to hell in a handbasket. We have to keep uh, warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. This has been this thing that countries have just not really been willing to go along with, even going back to uh, Paris. And since then, Donna Leframbeuse uh, is a tremendous journalist and researcher in Canada who has, I believe, done more to debunk the IPCC than the entire mainstream media in this country ever have and ever will. She joins me now. Donna, great to talk to you and have you on the show finally. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for the invite. Pleasure to be so, here. So, I mean, what is the, the thesis of this uh, latest report here from the IPCC? I mean, basically, it's we're all going to die unless you do what we want. Yes, and that is not, as you mentioned, that is not a new message. In fact, that has been the, the message of, of environmental activists since Earth Day, which is like 52 years ago. So every year or every few years, we, we are told it's the, the last call, the last chance. This is the last generation that has any hope of saving the planet. And, and it's gotten a, a bit repetitive. Um, the IPCC is a is a is a UN body. It's it is uh, part of the UN. It is run by UN bureaucrats and and. You know, I have, um, thank you for those kind words about, about the work I've done on the IPCC. Um, I've, I've spent more than 10 years now studying this organization that I'd never even heard about before. And, and I didn't start this way. I thought it was important to be open-minded and to be fair and to look very carefully at, at what they were doing. But I have come to the conclusion that it's, it's the UN. And because it's the UN, we need to just close the door and say, thank you very much. You're not legitimate. We don't recognize your authority. Because the problem with the UN is that it is not accountable to anyone. And it is not, um, it is not democratic. If we have a concern about how a UN body is behaving, we have no ability whatsoever as members of the public to, to vote those people out, to get rid of them, to tell them to mm -hmm. change course or pull up their socks. So this is a UN body. Body. It is, it, you know, it's, um, and, and so, um, yeah, thank you very much, but we're not going to pay attention to you. That is my conclusion. That's the best way to respond to these people. 
I want to just don't give away where I'm going with this because I think you're shrewd enough to detect where I'm going with this. But I, I want to read a bit from an Associated Press report about the United Nations. A senior UN environmental official says entire nations could be wiped off the face of the earth by rising sea levels if the global warming trend is not reversed uh, in the next 10 years. Governments have a 10-year window of opportunity to solve the greenhouse effect before it goes beyond human control. That was in 1989. <laughs> so yes, you are you are very correct that the the overarching goal has not changed, the rhetoric has not changed, but we give them well we, not you and I, but I think society, the media, governments give them a pass when none of these doomsday predictions actually materialize. We do, we do, and we have a very short memory, so we forget that just last year they told us it was the last call, and, and five years ago they told us it was our last chance. We forget, and the uh, the media uh, turns out, um, you know, the mainstream media turns out to be very good recyclers. They're just repeating the same things over and over again, so, um, you know, and once you, once you clue in and you notice that, um, you know, I think that can be very liberating, um, but but you know perhaps it's it's useful for me to say just a few words about how the ipcc operates please people call it a scientific body this is the science the science has spoken in fact it's not what the ipcc does is write reports they are they are literature reviews so they recruit a bunch of scientists and ask them to survey the published scientific literature and write a report about what li that literature says about you know sea level rise or about soil degradation and then they put it all together and they say the science has spoken but it's not science it's it's it's, it's kind of journalism in fact it's <laughs> You know, what What does it, yeah. So, Just as shoddy as a, as a lot of journalism <laughs> too, but carry on. So so that's what's happening. So when people say, oh, the, the, the IPCC is scientific, it's not, it's not. And in fact, some amount of trouble has been taken to, to mislead us, to tell us that, well, the scientists are writing it, but the scientists are not in charge. The scientists are told, you're going to work on chapter five and you have... 300 words to talk about this topic and you have 500 words to talk about that topic and the one over there the governments really are keen on that so even if there isn't any research you kind of just have to wing it and tell us something because governments want to know about that in the report and in fact scientists have so little control that in one report they said we'd like to change the title of our chapter because of the feedback we've received says that it's got it talks about systems in the title and that's confusing for people we'd like to change it to ecosystems they wanted to add three letters to the title and they were basically told oh you don't have the power to do that we would have to go through a whole series of meetings through the ipcc bureaucracy to get that change approved so it's not a scientific document. Scientists are not in charge. And it's really the UN bureaucracy using scientists to as kind of a shield or kind of, you know, put on the white lab coat and dress up our agenda. And we'll say it's scientific. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
There are. I mean, despite the vaunted uh, and so-called consensus uh, of scientists, there are some dissidents. I, you know, people like Willie Soon and Ian Plymer and, and many others around the world, especially in Australia, that do push back against this uh, either in, in full or in part. People like them, what happens to them in the IPCC process? Are they just excluded altogether? They're not let in the door? Are they allowed to contribute, And but perhaps their stuff is just like shoved down to, you know, footnote 3072 on page 5072? Like what happens to the people that do exist in the academic community that are, are skeptics, as they say? Well, in some cases, they're frozen out from the beginning. Their their views are well known, and so the IPCC doesn't even recruit them. Um, in other cases, they participate in the IPCC. They raise their concerns about the IPCC process, and that's when they're they're frozen out. Um, you know, technically, anyone can, or anyone you know with some credentials, can comment on drafts of the IPCC reports as they're developed. But there is no um, there's no obligation for the authors to pay attention to those comments. So, you know, some of those dissident um, scientists have taken a great deal of time to write out their concerns, to document their concerns, to point to published literature. And it basically disappears, you know, um, down a black hole and has no effect whatsoever. So. So mm -hmm. yes, there are there are a great number of scientists with with very impressive credentials who who beg to differ, who have a different analysis, but um, the IPCC is not a welcoming place for them. A mutual friend of ours, a, a retired professor from uh, University of Western Ontario, Christopher Essex. I invited him years ago on a, a debate, and I you know thought I would do a really good journalistic job and have him and someone else on. And and he had said you know that there's no point because he said you can't actually debate science in these forums. You end up debating politics and debating these things. And and it was a, a fair point. I mean I'm a journalist. I'm not a, a scientist by any stretch. So if someone actually starts speaking in scientific language, I don't really have the ability to push back as much as that I may on on some other things. And and. That's the one thing that I find very striking is that a lot of the times the proclamations you get are not actually scientific language, the ones you get from the IPCC, from the United Nations. And, and you are right. It's sort of shielded as this being part of the scientific process. And then somehow it translates to things like final warning and, you know, irreparable harm. Real scientists, if you speak to them, don't actually use absolutes like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> See, you and I can use absolutely. But yeah, real scientists when they're talking about research in fact i like i've interviewed researchers about so many things and, and they're always so cautious when you say something with a level of certainty because that's not what science is exactly exactly so you know that's another alarm bell that's another red flag for us as members of the public to notice that scientists are usually very cautious and they're very careful and they very qualify what they say and that's not what the scientists who are talking about global warming in the mainstream media do they behave very differently they behave much closer to to political activists because in fact that's what they are so explain to me the danger of this, because, you know, there are lots of agencies and organizations that uh, publish reports and they get, you know, acknowledged, they get received into a library, they plopped on a shelf and they're never seen before. But uh, the IPCC's reports are not that. No, in fact, the, the whole purpose of the IPCC reports is to facilitate the UN treaty on, on climate change. 
So without that treaty, the, the IPCC wouldn't exist. And it, it makes a certain amount of sense that if you're trying to get 185 countries who belong to the UN to be all on the same page and to start some negotiations, it's good to have a, a base document, sort of a, an agreed statement of facts is what the lawyers would say. This is what we think is, is the state of, of, mm -hmm. of climate. So, um, so that's the that's the purpose of those reports. They're not scientific. They are they're they're a document intended to facilitate UN negotiations. You know, we're talking high test international politics here. The, that's the whole purpose of the of the IPCC report. So, so we the, the process is such that the governments of the world participate in in helping the reports to be written and then they're sort of held to them and and so we have governments all over Canada at the municipal level at the at the provincial level at the federal level who point to the IPCC report and say well this is what's happening this is why we need carbon taxes this is why we we are now having to persecute our farmers and and make um, rules about nitrogen um, because the IPCC says so it's all house of cards once you start looking at it carefully. So yes, it, it's governments point to this and say, you know, this is what we must do because the IPCC says so. But the IPCC is just a political construct. So what's the next step of this? Because obviously this was the, the final part of the, the sixth assessment report. Do they just go immediately into the seventh report now? I think they will. That's what they've done always so far. So, so you know, there are summaries of the reports written because the reports can be 7,000 pages long and who's going to read those is certainly not politicians. So they end up doing a summary that's 20 or 30 pages. So what's just came out last, last Monday is a summary of several other previous summaries. So <laughs> they have to summarize the summaries now. It's so dense and long. Okay. Um, so, you know, they, this is a, because, because part of the, the negotiations for the climate change accord is that there have to have a meeting every year. That's the COP meeting, right? At the end of the year, COP 27 or whatever we're on now. It's, it's part of the, the regime, uh, the, the doctrine. You must have a meeting every year. And so then, you know, it's guaranteed that people are going to fly around the world and there's going to be all this press, another climate meeting. So it's very much established now, um, you know, in, in our governments. And I'm not quite sure how we're going to dislodge it because I'm told that in Germany, they still have parts of the government that are working on acid rain, which was kind of a scare back in the, you know, the 1980s. And it's, it's once... Once government takes on these agendas, it's very difficult to get rid of them again. Yeah, they, they perpetuate their own existence. I mean, that's the thing, like, you know, COP, the, you know, COP 15 and COP 20 and COP, all of these things, everyone sees. And then you look and there's like a parallel track of COPs about something else. And they're like, so there are all these like, you know, different uh, conferences of the organized parties every year. And you're looking around, I'm like, no one's even paying attention to these ones anymore. They just, someone just set it in motion 20 years ago and it just, you know, goes on in, in perpetuity. So uh, I'm glad you are not letting this fly under the radar. Donna Lefremboise, you're doing great work. Where's the, the best people for people to get up to speed, uh, the best uh, vehicle for people to get up to speed on this issue if they haven't followed your work on it? Um, well, I have a book on Amazon. It's called The Delinquent Teenager 
who was mistaken for the world's top client, top climate scientist. It's a few years old now, but it's still people tell me um, who've just read it this in the past month. This is really, really um, eye opening. I didn't know all of these, these things. So on Amazon, that's a good um, a good place to look. I'm on Twitter under my handle. There is no consensus at no consensus. And this was not about Greta Thunberg. This was like long before Greta Thunberg was the uh, delinquent teenager that ran the climate world. That's true. That's indeed true. Yes. <laughs> All right, Donna, thanks very much. Great chatting with you. Thank you. All right. That is, she is just such a, an incredible wealth of knowledge on this. And it was actually uh, Christopher Essex, who I mentioned earlier, that uh, had said, you know, Andrew, you should get Dawn on your show. And I realized I actually don't think I've ever interviewed her. I followed her and uh, we've corresponded. And uh, she has, also has a, a great Substack that has uh, followed some of the stories related to the uh, trucker convoy. And she wrote some very kind things about my book when that came out. And I'm very grateful to her for that as well. So that does it for us for today. We will be back later this week with more of Canada's most a reverend talk show hope you enjoy the rest of your week thank you god bless and good day to you all thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show support the program by donating to true north at www.tnc.news